All right, Acts 15, 16, we've moved on from 15 after a number of weeks there. We're in 16, 1 through 15 today, and let's pray. Our Father, we live in a fallen and broken place. All the best blessings in this world have limitations. Yet you, our Lord, are boundless and good. The depths of your word can't be plumbed or the heights summited. We can gather the grain of your word and never arrive at the edges of that field. Grant that we would add to the storehouses of our understanding, that we might draw from them to be filled throughout this coming week and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We stand for the reading of the word, Acts 16, 1 through 15. Remember, Paul and Silas had left uh, Antioch to go and, and check in on the churches in the Galatia area to cross over the Taurus Mountains and back into Galatia to check in on them. So this is where we are at this point in the text. It says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come to, women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul, to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, her and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Amen. This is God's word. We're all kind of just dying to know the future, I think, for ourselves. I get this question all the time at at work at Ligonier, but how can I know? 
God's will for my life? How can I know the will for the future? Uh, for, for marriage, for work, for kids, for my suffering, uh, for my effective, effectiveness. How, how can I know what God wants for me and for my life? And sometimes there's an uncertainty there about the future that can lead us to doubt. I think we all experience doubt from time to time. And how can we trust that, that Jesus is really in control? Not just theoretically, but really personally, not in a trite affirmation of the intellectual truth of the doctrine, but in a way that means something and impacts our lives. How can we know that Jesus is in control? Because Jesus is king. That's how we know. Jesus is king. Today I want to contrast two ideas. Confidence and certainty. Confidence and certainty. What we want is certainty about our circumstances, about the future. What we need is confidence in Jesus, in the absence of that certainty. So confidence in Jesus, in the absence of certainty about the future. Isn't that what we want from our kids, for parents? We... we, we can't always tell them what they want to know. One of mine wants to know everything. And I can't always tell him what he wants to know. We not, may not be able to convey exactly why we are doing something the way we are. But what we want is simple trust that mom and dad know what they are doing. They can lean on that. Though they would like to lean on their own understanding that... And that they can lean on the fact that mom and dad know what they're doing. There's that principle of confidence and certainty. We don't have certainty about the future, but we have confidence that the Lord Jesus knows what he's doing. And we trust that Jesus knows best because he's Jesus. We believe as as people, as Christians, that he's called us to a purpose, a big picture purpose, is the Great Commission. We believe, as he says in the Great Commission, that he is with us to the end of the age. But how does that guidance, how does that with us manifest itself? How does confidence in the midst of uncertainty strengthen us for the task ahead? And we have three stories here um, in this passage that preach to us confidence in the guidance of the Lord Jesus. I've organized this message under three headings. Um, there are really three attitudes that I think this passage confronts. Those three headings are, just give me a rule, just give me a rule, just give me a, an itinerary. And I'm forgetting the last one. <laughs> and uh, oh yeah, just give me a formula. So just give me a rule, just give me an itinerary, and just give me a formula. So these are attitudes we have that, that I think this text confronts. 
So the first story and the first point is Timothy, the story of, of Paul and Silas bringing Timothy into their team. And here we see this attitude, I think, that's confronted is, is that we just want a rule. So Paul and Silas have, have traversed the Taurus Mountains and they arrive in Derby and Leicester in the district of Galatia. And Timothy, they encounter Timothy. Timothy's a prominent figure in the New Testament. As we know, the books of First and Second Timothy were written to him. Uh, he's a co-author or a, a minuensis, a scribe of several of Paul's epistles. Um, and he's mentioned frequently in the New Testament. Um, perhaps we suspect maybe he was saved on the first missionary journey through this area because it says here that there was a disciple there. He was already there. He wasn't converted on this trip. And he says he was well spoken of by the brothers. He was a man of good repute. This this idea of good repute or being well spoken of is a consistent theme in Acts. Uh, we hear about Barnabas, Stephen, the other deacons, uh, Cornelius, Ananias. They're all spoken of as men who are well spoken of, which is an important feature as leadership in the New Testament, as we see for the list of qualifications for elder in Timothy and Titus, that a man be of good repute. So, therefore, Paul desires to bring this man from what we see in, in First and Second Timothy, a rather young man, on this journey with them to, to do the work of uh, missions. Timothy's mother was a Jew, and his father was a Greek. And the way the language is phrased, it's almost as if uh, his father was was an unbeliever and possibly dead, possibly not around anymore. Uh, mixed marriages, especially in, in the Jewish culture, a Jewish woman being married to a Gentile is is really looked down upon. And so we don't know the circumstances. Maybe they were married before her conversion. Maybe she was a proselyte. We don't know. But she was a Jew and he was a Greek, an unbeliever probably. In Second Timothy, we learn that Peter's uh, uh, Timothy's uh, mother her name is Eunice, and her gran- his grandmother's name is Lois. And Paul says that they have a sincere faith, those two women have a sincere faith, and they've had a dramatic impact on Timothy. He says that Timothy has been acquainted with the scriptures from childhood. Now, in light of the Jerusalem Council, and really in terms of Luke's narrative in close proximity, these stories... Uh, verse 3 strikes us as very strange. Paul wanted Timothy, Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So after all that, all of Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council and that no circumcision is not required, now Paul wants to circumcise Timothy. What an unusual turn of events. Luke even goes on to say here in in verse 4, And they went on their way through the cities, and they delivered to them for observance and the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So even Paul's mission was to disseminate the decision of the Jerusalem council. And here he is, wants to circumcise Timothy. What is going on here? So that's, this is where I get this idea of um, just give me a rule. 
We just want a rule. We just want a cut and dried protocol. At least many of us do. We want a universal axiom. Many of us just to say, just tell me what I'm supposed to do and I'll do it. Some of us, on the other hand, are more, don't tell me what to do, I'll do it myself. But I don't think any of us, at least by nature, say, give me a principle and I will undertake the difficult task of applying that through discernment and wisdom. That's hard work. Just give me a rule or let me decide for myself. Don't give me a principle that I have to think and use discernment and wisdom. But the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 5 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice discerning good from evil. That's, that's the principle there. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It's not easy. It's not always easy to apply God's word to our lives. It takes work, effort, wisdom, and discernment. Paul here demonstrates wisdom in the powers of discernment. Um, Paul's unchanging and guiding principle here, this is his maxim in his ministry, it seems, is all for the sake of the gospel. Whatever else, let's shove aside all for the sake of the gospel. We have this concrete declaration of the apostles at the Jerusalem Council, and now how will he make application of that declaration in a complex world. Now it's important to point out that the Jerusalem uh, Council Declaration was not all circumcision is prohibited. It is that circumcision is unnecessary for salvation. We see Paul in a contrasting story in Galatians chapter 2, 3 through 5. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So here in Galatians, in Galatians 2, circumcision of Titus is a gospel issue. He says, so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved, we did not circumcise Titus. Because they were saying, you must be circumcised to be saved. And Paul said, no way. Then here in this story, he circumcised Timothy. So what we see is it's not compromise, it's wisdom for the sake of the gospel. Freedom in Christ here is leveraged not for personal gain, but for the love of neighbor. He circumcised Timothy in order to remove an unnecessary burden or distraction in order that the gospel could be proclaimed freely. Why fight with these Jews about this question of circumcision? Timothy was the child of a Jew. He had every right to be circumcised as a Jew, culturally speaking. Why fight about it when you can just deal with it? 
no record here of how Timothy felt about this this decision, but um, but Paul is very interested in doing everything for the sake of the gospel. First Corinthians nine nineteen through twenty three. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I may win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I may save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So we see here this principle, and I think we can struggle with this at times, that we become so rigid that everything is a gospel issue, <laughs> that, that we have to do everything a certain way, that this is the only biblical way to do it. But we see here there's some room, some flexibility for the sake of the proclamation of the gospel. Between these boundaries that are defined, defined by the revealed will of Christ, we're called to wisdom to be discerning in applying the word of God to our own situations. So he, he doesn't give us the rule that we desire in every situation. Uh, we're not automatons with a set of algorithms encoded in us that we just execute. We're not members of a sort of despotic communist regime that that demands conformity and uniformity on every level. We are creatures created in the image of God with wills and capacity for wisdom. We, We are being redeemed from our fallen state and conformed to the image of Christ, who is wisdom personified. So we're called to wisdom, to execute the word of God in wisdom. And Paul's guiding principles here are love of neighbor, through the clear preaching of the gospel and removing unnecessary barriers. He says elsewhere, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. So we encounter doubt at times because our expectations for certainty about how we're supposed to act or how the future should unfold are not met. And we just want, just give me a rule to live by. And then we doubt as a result when we don't get it. Instead, we're called to trust Christ and that he has given us all we need for life and godliness and that we are to apply the principles, laws, and gospel truths he has given us with wisdom and with discernment. And the next story, the second story, is of Paul's vision of the Macedonian man and the next heading and the attitude that needs to be corrected is just give me an itinerary. Verse 6, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. So here twice, they're forbidden uh, directly by the Holy Spirit from preaching the gospel in certain regions. And it seems that, that Paul's plan was to kind of circle through what's modern-day Turkey or, 
or Asia Minor and kind of circle back that way. Um, but Christ moved them a different direction. He moved them westward more into what is modern day Greece. He says in verse 9, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Um, so, I love maps. It's a real problem with these texts because I'll be studying and then I'll get just lost in the map. I'll start looking at the maps and I could go on for hours looking at maps. Um, so, I tried to explain and I thought of a way to explain the geography here with my body. So, this may be weird, but so <laughs> they're coming from this way. If this is Galatia, the region of Asia is over here, and the Asia, uh, Bithynia is over here. So as they're heading this way, God says, don't preach in Asia. And then they head up to Mycenae, which is in the north of a- Asia, and he's going to go up into Bithynia. So it seems like he wants to make a circle this way. But God said, or he gets a vision from Macedonia, which is Greece over here, the northern region of Greece. There's a water here. So they go back down from here. Instead of going to Bithynia, they go to Troas and over to Philippi. So I hope that makes sense. Samothrace, we'll get to, is an island here. So this is, I love maps, I'm sorry. I have to explain that. Nevertheless, the, the big question is why. Why did God call him, instead of going to Bithynia and Asia, why did he call them to Macedonia instead? I mean, is it somehow wrong to want to preach the gospel in Bithynia or in Asia? I mean, in Bithynia, we have a, a city that we're familiar with. At least it, it, it's called this, it was called this later, is Nicaea. Also, a city we're also familiar with at that time, Byzantium, which became Constantinople, which became Istanbul. Um, in Asia, in this region of, of Turkey, modern-day Turkey, we have the cities of Ephesus, Colossae, Laodicea, all seven cities in, uh, of the churches in Revelation. They're all right there. So these are major areas of Christian development later in the future. Why didn't he just let him preach the gospel there? We don't know. We don't know. It seems like a good thing, but we don't know. Jesus, through the Spirit here, though, it seems he's, he's not saying no, never. He's saying not yet. Go here. We don't know his reason, but we know he had a better plan than Paul's plan. And the result is the westward expansion of the gospel into more Gentile territories. So we get this vision from the man of Macedonia, and he's crying out, help us, help us. And what's the form of the help here in the text that they, that they bring to Macedonia? Luke says, God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Of all the forms of help we can bring, help, bring the gospel to us. And notice just in passing the change here in person, the author has changed to the first person. It seems at Troas, Luke joined uh, the team and he's now with them. Now here we have again, as with the story of Timothy, is that the gospel is the driving force behind the ministry. Paul's maxim, all for the sake of the gospel. And Christ's guidance here is, is the preaching of the gospel 
in the West, increasingly to a Gentile audience. Some of us are more of the adventurous types. We're kind of like the thrill of the unknown. Um, the problem being that uh, probably those types would rather not be guided at all in any sense. But I think most people are just that type of, give me an itinerary kind of person. Give me a plan. I want a schedule. I want a road map of my life. I'm going to grow up. I'm going to graduate, have kids, get a house, have a job in a town, have a church, do this vocation. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to have a road map for my life. And I think that's fine. We need to make plans. We need to make detailed plans and strategize and seek to build a life where our family thrives and, and where we can appropriately minister the gospel and be intentional and thoughtful. But we need to remember to hold our plans loosely. Because a good plan doesn't guarantee that it's God's plan. We're all familiar with James 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So hold your plans loosely. Then James goes on in verse 17. And he said, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So we often talk about that first part. Hold your plans loosely, but if you know what to do and you're supposed to do it, you should do it. You should proceed to do it. So we ought not to be fearful of work or of intentionality or planning, because I think sometimes when we say, hold your plans loosely, we, we hear, don't plan at all, just let God. No, we're to work, to plan, and to be intentional. But when we emerge from the womb, we're not handed an itinerary, a roadmap for the future. And it would be kind of nice, I think, if Paul, if God would give us like directives from the Holy Spirit or visions from, from God, from a man in Macedonia to tell us how to go, but it just doesn't work that way. In fact, in redemptive history, it's quite rare for God to work that way. Normally, he only works that way through prophets and agents of revelation in key pivotal moments. So we should not expect him to do that. Now, it can be disorienting when Jesus uh, changes the plan on us. I, I, I thought I was doing the right thing. I, I thought I was heading the right direction. I was trying to be biblical. Um, I'm really trying to serve. I'm not trying to serve money or fame or anything else. I'm really, my, my intentions are pretty pure. I thought this was a good plan. And why did you change it up on me? We should not let Christ's, at times, disorienting guidance prove to be a discouragement or a cause for doubt for us. And in fact, it should be an encouragement to us. As painful as it is, a door slammed is actually Christ's providence. We can take solace in the fact that that is a directive for us. So remember that principle of confidence versus certainty. We don't have certainty about the future, about our purpose, about the way we are to be guided. 
But we do have confidence in Christ that he is unfolding his plan according to his purpose. The third and final story here is the story of Lydia. And our final heading here is just give me a formula. We just want a formula. So they're called into Macedonia. They go over to Macedonia. He says, verse 11, So setting sail from Troas, we made a voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we remained in this city some days. He goes on in verse 13, And on the Sabbath day, so they're going out on, on would be Saturday, the seventh day, the Jewish Sabbath, um, and this was Paul's MO, was to go out to the Jews first in any city he went to, but it says that he went outside the gate to the riverside, not to the synagogue, but to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Um, so to have a synagogue, you have to have ten men, ten Jewish men to have a synagogue. So presume here that they didn't have enough men. There were a few women, a few Jewish women who would meet for prayer on Sabbath day down by the river. Um, in verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Um, so Thyatira, ironically, after Paul's forbidden to preach the gospel in Asia, is a city right in the heart of Asia. <laughs> That's kind of ironic. Um, Thyatira is known for having dyers' guilds, dyeing cloth and textiles, especially for purple. Um, and apparently they would harvest shellfish, and it would take like 10,000 crushed shellfish to make just a little bit of dye. So it's pretty labor-intensive. Her name and trade, many suggest um, that, that suggest that she may either be a, a freed slave of some kind or possibly... Uh, even a member of the, of the household of Caesar. Um, but she was a proselyte. That means a, a Gentile who had adopted the Jewish faith. Or at least a, uh, she says here she was a worshiper of God. So at the very least she was a worshiper of God, of the, the God of the, the Old Testament. And then in verse 14 it says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Um, and not just to hear, it says, uh, not just to intellectually grasp, but to really pay attention. We'll come back to that in a little bit. In verse 15, after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. There's just a brief digression here. Household baptism features prominently in discussions about and debates about infant baptism. And honestly, I've never found the household baptism argument to be very convincing, even as a pedo baptist um, though I do see it as an added confirmation. I just don't think it's a great argument. But I'll say in passing that the principle we need to keep in mind here with these household baptisms from a paedo-baptist perspective is not um, there's all these household baptisms, five of them, so presumably there was an infant there. (laughs) That's not the argument. That's a terrible argument. That's presumptive. Um, The text doesn't say that. But I'll add the text does not say either that every member in each of these five households confessed faith before they were baptized. 
There's five instances, each time the leader believes, followed quite closely thereafter by a household baptism. So if it's presumptive to assume there were infants because the text doesn't say so, it's also presumptive to assume that every person in the household made profession immediately after the leader of the household believed um, because the text doesn't say so. So the principle that the paedo-baptists affirm is not presuming infants were present, but the general theme that runs through scripture of what Sinclair Ferguson calls uh, the covenantal principle of the solidarity of the family, that this is a covenantal uh, structure. The family is a covenantal structure, just as circumcision uh, was, so is baptism. That's that's the idea, pardon the, the digression, but it's not the main point of the text, but I think it's helpful to, to hit on that. Uh, the text says doesn't mention anything of a man in the picture, a husband, so she's possibly a widow. Uh, it says her household was buried, so that means she had kids. Also included in households in this covenantal principle would have been possibly slaves or servants. Um, so we don't know who else was baptized, but they were baptized. <coughs> Notice here also she's baptized without kind of all the show of, of like a mini Pentecost. You remember... Um, in Samaria or Cornelius's household, they just burst out into tongues. And, and even at Pentecost, this is what happens. Well, here this doesn't happen. She simply makes profession and is baptized, which I think shows that those instances of Samaria and Cornelius's household and uh, Pentecost were unique events in redemptive history. Pentecost, then showing that the the gospel was going out away from the Jews into Samaria, and then again out away into um, the, the Gentiles, those were unique instances. Here she's just converted and baptized. And her, here her conversion is confirmed by her profession and by her subsequent uh, hospitality. It says she urged us, saying, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful in the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. One of the chief signs that someone is saved, that they're regenerate, is that they love the brethren. That they desire to be with them, that they enjoy their company. Another chief sign is that they long to know Christ, to be taught more about Christ. Surely that was at least a big part of Lydia's motivation in inviting Apostle Paul to your house. That's why I would want the Apostle Paul to come to my house, is to tell me about Christ. Now I want to go back to the part that I think really stands out here that's in the second half of 14, is that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The girls were away this weekend, and my dad was here helping me watch the kids, and we were talking about this a little bit. It's kind of this question of what do you have to do to get people to be enthusiastic about Christ or about the church? What what do you got to do? Of course, we're trying to... Solve the world's problems, right? Um, and just a part of my own testimony, a major turning point in my life was uh, I read the, the book The Pleasures of God by John Piper and uh, learned that God, what, what God delights in is what matters most. And then if I delight in what he delights in, I'll actually find joy. That clicked for me and it just revolutionized my life. Since that time, I've given those books 
away to many people. I taught Sunday school classes on them, many phone conversations, exhortations, prayers, and seen some fruit to be sure. But there's never been like a magic bullet, like just here's this book and it will change your life. It never works that way. It changed my life. Why is there no magic bullet? Because there was nothing in me in that moment, in that sequence of events. It was all about the power of the Holy Spirit. There's no book, no teaching, no approach that can be a magic bullet. That's why this, give me a formula. I just want a formula. Just do this sequence of events and everybody will be saved. Why, why is this tactic not working? It's so frustrating. Why, why will my family member not listen to me? Why are they so obviously hurting themselves and yet they're so hard-hearted? Why will they not hear the voice of reason? Because the gospel is not a formula. It requires the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of a person to change their heart. It says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. I think we tend to blame ourselves as the presenters, but it's not always our fault. There is such a thing as a listener who is dull of hearing. In fact, there are many of those. <laughs> I think when doing ministry and working in the church and doing evangelism, in our day and age, the focus is always so much on what is the program, what is the method of communication, how does it look, how can I tailor it. I think the scripture is more interested in the hearer. Is the hearer dull of hearing? So we have in Hebrews 5.11 about this. We have much to say to you, and it is hard to explain. Why is it hard to explain? Because he doesn't know how? No, since you have become dull of hearing. So it requires the power of the Holy Spirit to open the ears of a listener. There is no magic bullet. There is no formula. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, but it's not a formula. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So in a place of uncertainty about ministry formulas, when those fail us, we learn in time to be confident in the Lord Jesus Christ. So just give me a rule, just give me an itinerary, and just give me a formula. I think instead, in Christ is all wisdom and discernment. And in Christ is is the plan and a purpose. And in Christ is the power of the gospel. So instead of all those things, just give me Christ. Amen.